Okay, so trying, and it's in, and I do this with myself, and I try to do it with us all as I'm teaching or preaching, but you get, you get a lot of specifics, and they're in there, and boy, I mean, one, there's specific things can just change your life on a dime. But you sort of got to keep things, you got to keep things in the big picture, too. And so if I told you this, it's not the one I thought it was. God's promises. See, I'm using the word promise here. This, this is the word I'm playing on, promise. Tell me about a promise. What, what do you mean, a promise? It's an English word. What do you mean? Promise of eternal life for those who believe. But just in general. Has anybody in here ever made a promise? Oh, yes. Well, regarding what? What do you mean you made a promise? It's your word that you will do. Okay. And then we'll just leave it blank there. Okay. There's an interesting statement. If you look in chapter four, uh, chapter four uses the word promise. Mm, I don't know. I need to do a word search in Romans and, and just look for the word promise. But it's a couple of times in that chapter, and it's unusual for the letter. Uh, uh, what, what I'm looking for is down about verse 19. He used also about 13, which just the monkey rolled in my mind there. It's not through law that Abraham received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Uh, that is how the righteousness that comes by faith. But about 21, 21 specifically. 18 to 21 is kind of a spot in my mind, but I think it's 21. Read that for us, Alan. It's 20. Okay. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Okay, that word promise is in verse what? 20. 20, so 20, okay. Promise, but go ahead. That's our point right there. That's 21. So it's in both first. So he used five, six times maybe in that one little section there, which is a pretty good section because he's talking about Abraham and David. And what, what's he emphasizing regarding promise? Did Abraham have a promise? I mean, he spent a whole chapter talking about Abraham primarily. What's the big deal about Abraham? What did he have that made him different than everybody else on the planet? No, he had a promise. He had a promise. That's what he had. Where did he get a promise? What's a promise? That through him, nations... Well, he's got multiple promises, doesn't he? And through all this, 
the circumstances, the fact he's he's good as a, he's about a hundred years old, and he's got a ninety-year-old wife with a dead womb. And God said, "You're gonna have offspring." Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so, as a result of his what? What did he have? Do all promises require faith? Yes. Yeah. Or they're yes. or they're worthless. Why would you say that? Yeah, because and you've got you've got people generally. Would y'all generally agree with that? I mean, we have got to three agreeing with that. There, why would it be worthless? If, if you don't have faith that the promise will be fulfilled, it's just worth. It's just words. You need somebody talking. You need somebody. I just need somebody to give me some words. I tell people I just need a little time, a few kind words. No, I need a promise. I know I need a promise because I've got one. Abraham needed a promise. And promises, think about promises just a minute. When, when, when do promises have to do with? What, what part of time do promises involve? Future. Now? Future. future. They involve the future? I don't know why we're making promises now when we're talking about the future. Why don't we just wait till it gets here and go, ha ha, guess what? <laughs> That's a surprise. We ain't talking about no surprises. We're talking about promises. The promises have necessarily, it has nothing to do with right now. Mm, I didn't say that. The Bible sure didn't say that. But if you want to talk about fulfillment, it has to be not in the now or it's not a promise. Jim, I'm going to loan you my pocket knife. Are you really looking forward to it? No, I done did it. There ain't no looking forward to it. So it looks to the future, right? Promises look to the future. What about right now? Really? Well, what's that worth? What what does think about that just a second? Well, hope hope has to necessarily when we get to chapter eight by verse twenty three, we'll figure that out. Hope has to do with guess what? Mm -hmm. Is hope about right now? Not about right now. Is a promise about right now? Well, it looks to the future. Hope, hope has to do with the future, but is it doing anything right now? Hope will encourage us to, look, to, to continue in our actions. Why? Just depends on what? Who made the cotton-picking promise? That's all it depends on. 
The promise is just as good as what? The one who made it. It's as good as the one who believes it. No, it ain't anything to do with the one who believes it. It has to do with the one who made it. Does that make sense to us? I'll go over to Acts chapter 2. I'll show you something. This is not off the point, but it's part of the point. But I just want you to know God uses this term a lot in Scripture. Why? Well, he is the agent promoting, offering, and giving hope all time. Hope does not disappoint us. Hope that comes from God does not disappoint us. You might use that English word because it rhymes with something or something another. But if you're talking about hope, you're talking about real hope. I'm not talking about wishful thinking. I'm talking about hope that's bedrock, hope that cannot disappoint us. That kind of hope, I know where you got it because only one person that gives that kind of hope is God. And it's in regard to stuff about the future, but if you don't think it's powerful right now, you ought to try believing it and it would be. You ought to try believing it and it would be. Hope doing you any good? Not as long as you think there's disappointment involved. Hope has no disappointment involved with it at all. If you hoped for something and didn't get it, you didn't have hope. That's not God's hope. Mm-mm, not at all. So Acts chapter 2, and these people just figured out they crucified the Son of God. Of course, if they'd have paid attention, they'd know that ahead of time. But Peter just makes it explain to them in, in at least 23 different languages that they've never studied him and the other fishermen there involved. And they're, what on earth are we going to do? And what did he tell them? 238. Who's looking at that? You got it, Bill? What did he allow? Yeah, they said, what are we going to do? Peter said, I don't know. Figure it out yourselves. No, that's not what he told them. He told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That sounds like direct imperative commandment. What are we going to do? Well, God's got a commandment. Yeah, I mean, am I wrong? Is that a direct imperative commandment? That means God said it to those folks. Mm-hmm. He didn't say something else. He said, well, maybe. He didn't say, well, maybe, but nothing. He said, this is what you do. He didn't say right now, but they got with it, so that's implied. This is what you do. That's direct imperative commandment. No, it's bigger than that. Read verse 39, Bill. I'm, a, I'm inviting you to change your thinking and just go with what the Bible says. Do we believe Bible's true? Yeah, then before God, let's start reading it. What did he say? Just go ahead and keep talking a little bit, Peter. Go ahead. One more verse. The promises. what? Well, he changed the subject from commands and got into promises. What's he talking about? Is that a commandment or a promise? Mm-hmm. Is that a commandment or a promise? Where's them people, where are they standing? Where are they? I'm erasing, that's just stalling, giving y'all time to think. Where, where do they stand? Are they lost or saved? They're lost. Over here, what did he give them? Is it a commandment or a promise? It's a commandment. But it is to both. It's actually both. Don't separate it. Don't separate it. You separate it, you're wrong, because by inspiration, Peter just unseparated it. 
They had 613 ordinances, decrees, and commands, and precepts. They had 613 commandments under their covenant with God. They've been saying time out for three years because repent. Here comes the kingdom. You never saw anything like it. Here comes this new life, this new kingdom. Jesus is it. He's the king. They figure out to crucify the king, and Peter said, but God rose him from the dead. And since God raised him from the dead, since you did too crucify him with the help of wicked men, put him to death, and God raised him by the Spirit to immortality. Raised him never to die again, Romans 6, 9, and 10, which we're really just developing, okay? They're over here lost, and he gave them what? The promise of salvation. Either God either promised it or he didn't, and he did too. What did he promise them specifically? They hadn't done it yet. He didn't say, you know, last week when you was baptized, that ain't what he said. Here's something for you to do. You haven't done it, and so therefore, what do we call it? A promise. Who gave it? God. How good is it? Only as good as God only as good as his power. So what do they necessarily have to do with this promise? Y'all already went into it. I didn't let you go into great detail. I guess I should have. What do they necessarily have to do with this promise? Hmm? They don't fulfill it. What do they do with it? Believe it. Believe it. Why is it so hard for us to say that? I'll tell you one thing right now. I'm going to have to obey. If you don't believe it, it don't matter. Because guess what it is? A promise, and you ain't got it, and God promised it. Now, once they do it, once they obey the command that's within the promise, God promised, what did he, what did he promise to do. He gave a command and in the command is also a promise. The promise here is twofold. What is it? That's the twofold promise. You will be forgiven. This is future for y'all standing here around now. You know, 2,000 years ago when he says this, I just spoke in historical present. That's going to be bigger than all get out about next week when we get in the middle of Romans 7. Do y'all ever speak in historical present? You know what I'm talking about? I speak as if it's happening right now and I'm really talking about an event. I've just put myself in the middle of it for clarification and understanding. For example, just hang on to that. It's a deal. So God made this promise. This commandment had a promise. He said this promise, this promise right here, sins forgiven and God to dwell within you. He didn't say something else. He said this. What's the value of that promise? The God who made it. 
Here's what Abraham was in the habit of doing with God's promises. Guess what he was in the habit of doing? He believed them. And because he believed them, what'd that look like? He just takes all. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went. He didn't even know where he's going, the Hebrew writer said. By faith, he obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he became the father of many nations. Why? Man, God said it. I'm going with it. You think he spends a lot of time wrestling on, I can't remember if I gave God a promise or he gave me one. Let's see. You think he promised God anything? Probably did a bunch of times. God, if you'll just help me explain this to Sarah, please. I mean, I gave her to a foreign king and she's just not talking to me now. I'm like, woo, it's a big thing or something. What, what am I going on about? Because, brothers and sisters, you don't get away from that. You don't get away from that in Scripture. You get away from that, you're going the wrong direction. When Scripture quits being a promise of God to you, you have stopped listening. Here's some common thoughts that people have. I think this is just because I've been talking to people on purpose as fast as I can for 30 years. And this is what, this is what I keep hearing people articulate on some level. Mm, it's about 80-20. What are they talking about? Ma'am? God's involvement. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's exactly what they're talking Tell me your name. I hadn't met you, sister. I'm sorry. Jennifer. Jennifer. Man, honored to meet you, Jennifer. That's right on the, that's the nail on the head right there. And they're, and they're like, well, it's about, you know, I mean, how, how are you going to get in heaven anyway? Well, it's about 80, 20. I mean, God's not doing everything. Okay, he came of the promise, he created the universe, sacrificed his own son. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm telling you, it's going to be about 80% me and about 20% God, you know. I mean, I know you're not going to do everything right, but I figure you can whoop out 80%. And, and God's, gonna, God's promised to do the other 20 Mm-hmm. Y'all read the book of Romans. Because it's not in there. This not anywhere in Scripture, by the way. This, not a, this, is not a, this is not a promise. This is a, sounds like a legal binding contract from somebody that's loaning you money that does not love you and wants your money. Put 80% down and pay me 20% more than it's worth. Okay, fine. We got a deal. That, that ain't what we're talking about. And Paul puts this in judicial terms for this reason, for the reason that Christians need it. Now, when people take God up on his promise, Acts chapter 2, what happened to it? 
When they become fully persuaded God has power to do what he promised. What happens? Does God keep his promise? Glad we got that over with. Now we can go back serving the devil. No. Got that over with. We can set that aside. The only, only time we're going to need that is when Jesus gets back. So we'll grab a hold of it again. This is what they say in regard to sin. It's 80-20. It's 90-10. You get some people that are just real, real specific and real precise. And it's probably 95-5. And see, the thing is, you can go either way. You can put the 80 on God and the 95 on God, or you can put the 80 on you and the 95 on you. It doesn't matter. It's a lie either way. And Paul squelches the whole thing because he brings up this right idea right here. And the only thing that is... And it's not 20% of something else. It's just 100%. It's right all the time, anytime. That's all it is. That's all righteousness is, is being and, and is being right. That's streetwalk language, sidewalk language, street language, but that righteousness is being right. So I think, I think I'm be right 80% of the time. The other 20%, you know what? doesn't really matter. Now, sin doesn't matter. That's also a common thought. As long as you claim to be a Christian, sin doesn't matter. Where did you get that idea? I'm going to need some passages in context for where that comes from. I think we've done a fairly good job of pointing that out, and people are like, well, that's true. I just think we get mixed up and start standardizing sin because 95% righteousness and 5% sin, if that gets you into heaven, then you just standardize 5% sin. You just declared to me God, God accepts and fellowships 5% darkness. And John said, no, and I mean no. God is light. It's an illustration of this. And in him, let me be emphatic, is no darkness at all. Not none. Point zero, 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 one, nuh-uh. Nope. There's just this. That's all there is. So now, Paul went to all this trouble to describe for us that mankind, people on their own, guess what they don't have? Guess what they didn't accomplish? So guess where they're going in regard to God? Nowhere good. Nowhere good. What do they need? They need a promise. They need a promise. And a promise is powerful when it's based on someone who is faithful. The rider on that white horse whose name is faithful and true. That's what you need. Jesus said, you hang right there. I'm coming back to get you. You can mark it down. You know what's going to happen? 
he coming back to get you. And when you know that, when you believe that, when you're convinced of that, when you are convicted of that, when you find your assurance in that, guess what that gives you a whole bucket full of? Hope to get through what? Anything this life wants to put on you. Hope will just keep you going. That, that's just, that's just, that's, that's even animal instinct. I don't know who the first person was or who's taking credit for it, but I've heard a hundred times, you know, they take these rats, they do weird things to animals, especially rats, take these rats and put them in a bucket and it's full, they can drown, but it's so steep they can't get out of it. And you can throw a rat in there and he'll swim about a minute. The good healthy rat been eating all of his vegetables and working out and stuff. He swim about a minute. And then he done. He is wretched. Wretched doesn't mean wicked. It means more smack dab smooth out. He done. And he quits and he dies. And then you take a rat been eating too many potato chips and hanging out at the fast food stuff and never does work out. Just try to get what he, you know, and he's not even in good shape at all and put him in that bucket full of water. About every 20 seconds... For about 10 or 15 seconds, you put a stick down in that water he can get a hold of, and he goes, oh, he's resting a minute. Pull it out. He'll get, so you do that all day long with a rat. Why? Mm, just the nature. There's a chance I'm getting out of this deal. I ain't giving up. I ain't giving up. So in this predicament that we have... And it is unrighteousness. And it's a 100% deal across the board. I don't care what you know. I don't care how moral you think you are. I don't care the religious privilege God may have ordained you with. Right here's the big problem. Is there any hope? Because this brings deservedly, the wages of sin is... You want to take that to an eternal level? Because that's it. Condemnation's the only thing this can have. 5%, 2%, or point, 100 zeros and a 1. It don't matter. It's not receiving the same amount of condemnation, but it is too condemnation. And as long as this is my standing... As long as unrighteousness, being a sinner, as long as that's who I am, he said necessarily something real important in chapter 3, verse 9, didn't he? The reign and the dominion of sin is over who? Mm, just Jews and Gentiles. Nobody besides them. Just people that have committed unrighteousness. And sin has reign and rule over them. But in the middle of this discussion, he said, brothers and sisters, there's good news. It's not that they don't already know it. They already know it or they wouldn't be addressed as though, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, to all in Rome who belong to Christ Jesus. 
That's people who've obeyed the gospel. That's people who've took God up on his power and his promise. Why is he reiterating the promise? Well, Peter didn't have time. He didn't explain all this on the day of Pentecost. I'm sure he said a whole bunch of stuff because they just kept going and kept going and kept going. But what we have recorded, he didn't expound on all this. Paul's given this to people. Why? Because the promise of forgiveness of sins is not something that happened in 1978. It's something that happens all day, every day. God living in his children that he has cleaned up so that he can go in there. That would be the entire uh, Levitical system of the Old Testament, the explanation of that. God can't live where sin is. So if God's going to come, if God's going to move in, he's getting the sin out. And he got the sin out or he didn't move in. I kind of get that idea from Romans 8 9. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Well, that's just matter of fact in there. But there's good news. There's good news. We just, we're just satisfied. Well, everybody else is sinner too. That's not good news. The good news is God took away sin. The good news is God took away unrighteousness. The good news is God has granted, credited, and imputed righteousness through a promise. Through a promise. The gospel is a promise, brothers and sisters. I understand it involves direct imperative commands. I understand that. But when you remove it from being a promise, you devalue it. You made it worth nothing. Romans chapter 4, 13 through 15. Commands can just be law. Law brings wrath. On what? Everything that's unrighteous. It's not what the gospel does, but that's what law does. The gospel may have commands, but the gospel is a promise. Comments, questions? Why is all that so important? Let's go over to Romans chapter 6. Got to make my introduction shorter, Bill. Shoot. <laughs> well, okay, good. Being sure of what. Mm-hmm. Why would you have to believe a promise? We already went through all this, didn't we? What good is a promise to somebody who doesn't believe it? I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to give you the $500. I'm going to whatever. Plug your air machine, whatever it is. If you don't believe it, it doesn't do you one lick of good right now. And the truth of the matter is, if, if the right now involved you continually hanging on and continually doing something until the point of the future that I have not made certain, 
that I will return and I will take you home. If your job is to wait faithfully on my return to take you home and you don't believe the promise, what's the chance of you persevering? Went to zero real quick because you just went right back to being a rat. Rats don't have faith. They just operate by instinct. We have the opportunity to have faith, brother and sister. Why is Paul going into all this? I want to give this to you. He's going to talk about two things here. We're kind of doing Romans 6 and 7 at the same time, but we're doing this because Romans chapter 7 is is. In all the discussions I've had with thousands of people over the last 30 years, I think that's the single most misconstrued passage that's come up over time. Every single time somebody brings it up, almost. They've got ideas that they didn't get because they didn't listen to what he said before he got there. Okay? So what's he talked about? Remember we talked the other day in Romans 6. What's he talked about? He said a lot about slavery. And if you have slavery, and he even uses the word, but necessarily, if you have slavery, what's absolutely inherent in that? What two things do you know you have? What two kinds of people? If slavery exists, what do you have? You got a master. And you got a what? He's going to use both those terms, Romans chapter 6. And what did he start talking about in 3 9 that he never has quit yet? He just brings it up every now and then. What is it that has dominion over people when they don't have the promise of God? Sin. Guess what their life looks like? Looks like this. Looks like this. And he's going to say over here in Romans chapter 6, man, sin is a bad master. Sin's a bad master. Well, I wrote that wrong. But sin's a bad master, okay? What's the master? Sin. Is sin a good master? No, it's a bad master. It'll cost you more than you can imagine right now. It'll cost you everything eternally, Right? It's a bad master. So you don't want this. What is this? Masters and slaves. What are we really talking about? It's a relationship, isn't it? And then chapter 7. In chapter 7, he's got another illustration. First thing he said, I had to illustrate this. He said, you're weak in your natural self, so I thought I'd come up with an illustration. I've already given you one. You used to be slaves to sin. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness, so he's used this illustration of slavery and bondage of masters and slaves. In chapter 7, uh, 1 through 6, he's got, a, he's got a new illustration. Did you catch the 619 or something? Where, where is it? I, got it uh, I don't know the verse. I'm putting this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Where is that? Okay, 619. So it's an illustration, but it's not his only illustration. He said, I got another illustration. Guess what it is? Marriage. 
By the way, Deborah, did I let you get through with your question, darling? I'm sorry. I didn't think you even let her finish. I I got excited, Jim. I'm sorry. I apologize. Go ahead with your question. Faith faith is trusting, is relying, is believing. I know that's, it's depending. Hope is two things in every language I know to look it up in. It's expectation plus desire, not anything else. If you expect it and you don't desire it, it ain't no hope. I expect to get a whooping and I get home. I'm sure and certain of it. Now I want it. That ain't no hope. I mean, that's sure and certain, but ain't no hope in it. Ain't no power in it. Ain't no helping me. I don't care. I got to get home. Well, I just soon do something. Well, let's just skip it. I just won't go home. What if you desire it, but you don't really expect it? Oh, I wish so. I wish so bad. I could just thought the other day, I just wish I could drive by my mom and dad's old house and they'd be in there. It's Christmas time. I don't even know if the house is still standing. I can drive by there. But I don't expect them to be there. Is that hope? Anything to do with hope? So you see what I mean? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things hoped for. It is this undergirding thing of life. And then he gives you 55 examples in Hebrews chapter 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies. By faith, Noah built. No, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's took the promise and he believed it. He believed it. It's a powerful thing. So they are connected in a biblical sense, in, in a redemptive sense, in regard to redemption and salvation. You don't have any hope whatsoever if you don't have faith. And if you have faith, then your hope is sure and certain. So glad we went back to it because that right there is my point. We find the satisfaction of our own animal instincts to relegate faith as something that's not really all that sure and not really all that certain. And that, that's not what God's talking about. Yes, sir? That's it, verse 6. Because anyone who comes to him, anyone who comes to God, anyone who has covenant with God, anyone who responds to God, anyone who comes to him must believe exactly what Abraham believed. What's that? Must believe that he is the existing one. Not just that there's a God somewhere. No, he is it. 
He is Yahweh. He is the eternal one. He is the eternal existing one who keeps his promises. He is the eternal God. And that's not enough. The demons know that. They're well aware of it. They don't have any hope in it. They know it's coming. But there ain't no hope in it for them. Must believe that he is the existing one, that he exists, and that he rewards those. I trust in him. That's what you were calling people to when they were lost to become saved. If you were at once lost and you became saved, I know exactly what happened to you. I don't know exactly how it happened. That's a cool story, but I know exactly what happened. You became assured, convicted, and, and certain that God had the power to keep his promises and you took him up on the promise. So why go through all this? Because he's coming back to take us home and we got to hold on to it because that's what keeps us holding on. It's not something else. We got all these things to do. No, we don't, brother and sister. We got one thing to do. That's to get the promise of God and keep a hold of it with both hands earnestly. That's what we do. Whatever is failing or lacking in my life, if it, if it is to, to change and become this thing that dynamically brings glory to God and Jesus is revealed and lost people are saved and saved people are encouraged and this big old snowball going down a hill for God's purpose that happens, that happens when I hold on to God's promise. Now we're into relationship. Okay, sorry. So, got another relationship. I'm just saying, quit separating seven and six. There ain't no separation. Paul didn't separate them. Holy Spirit shouldn't, didn't. He's got another illustration for you. In a marriage, what do you got? Marriage necessarily implies what? It is a relationship. Glad you brought that up. Because slavery, same thing. It is relationship. Good to bring that up. That's why they're common illustrations, not contrasting illustrations. These are not contrasting illustrations. What happened right here? We didn't get through with this one. This was going to be the punchline. I messed it up. What happened right here? Is this just the standing of Christians? If it is, there's no good news. Chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 2, chapter 6, verse 2. 6, 2, and then verse 14. Let's look at those right fast. What did he allow? Does he want this? He, I just want y'all to be aware of your slaves sin. Everybody's going to hell. That's not what Paul says. not why he wrote the book. That's not going to keep anybody holding on. What did he say? 6, 2. How could, if you're a slave to it, can you live in it? Yes. Like a hog lives in the sunshine all day, every day. Yes, you can too live in it. What well, if you died to it? If you died to sin, then what happened to the relationship? Ceases, over, done with. Verse 14, what do you say? For sin shall not be your master. Sin used to be your master, but this is a promise. For sin shall not be your... This was the promise, Acts 2. This was the promise, November 1978. 
This was the promise. Guess what's still the promise? This still the promise. For sin shall not be what? Why? Verse 2. What happened? What brought an end to the relationship? Now, is that a fact or a promise? Was that part of your 80%? Bill baptized me, held me under for four minutes. I just started breathing water. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Who did the dying? Oh, Paul caught it. I didn't even give him no hints. Who did the dying? You get a, you're getting a gold star. I've got. I think I don't think I threw them all away. If I still got some gold stars, you're getting one, Paul. Because who did the dying? Or don't you know, that's a rhetorical question, means you do too. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Who did the dying? We were therefore, through baptism, buried into his death. Now, since that happened, so who died? And who? Who joined us at death? Who joined us in his death? When I'm standing over here on the lost side of the board, and he's trying to move me over here to the saved side, when I'm over here on the enemy side, and he's trying to move me over here to the child side, what's my problem over here? Sin. What have I got to do to end, end, end the relationship? Die. That's a commandment. No, that's a promise. I promise you, I promise you, I am connecting you and my son in that water as God's promise. Well, I don't believe it. Then you don't get in on it because a promise you don't believe, you don't get in on it. And I don't care if the Walmart parking lot guy made it or God made it. You don't get in on promises unless you believe them. You might lie to people, but you don't fake God out. You got to believe it to get in on it. First place, it's also got a commandment with it, and there's zero chance of me obeying a commandment if I don't believe it. I could do what he said and not trust what he said and not trust in his promise. There ain't no hope in that. That's just busy work. Let that soak in a minute. Let that soak in a minute. For the last 30 years, I had trying people trying to convince me that, well, baptism is just what people are doing for work. You, you, they never have understood baptism. Never. Because God said there's a whole lot of work went into it, and it wasn't you. It was me. It was my son. So, over here, you got death, death to sin. What'd that do? Dissolve the relationship. Praise God. Now, since I was a slave to sin and I died to sin, verse 7, anyone who has died has been what? Freed from sin. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, free from it. 
What's it got? I don't know if it's connected, but if I if whatever sin's got connected, I'm free from it. So it got a brand new illustration over here. He said, I know you guys will understand this. I'm just trying to put it in simple terms so you can understand it. And every marriage has what? A husband and a what? Rhymes with life. A wife. Is this a relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it have any similarities to this? Well, yeah, a good many. I don't want to call this bondage. How about this? To steal a word from chapter eight, obligation. Is the wife obligated to her husband? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the head of this relationship? I know it's anti-culture, anti-our common, our modern culture. I don't care. This is super culture. I'm talking about the gospel. Paul's using it for an illustration. And besides that, he already used Abraham as an example. And First Peter uh, said Sarah called Abraham what? Honey. No, she didn't call him honey. I don't even know the Hebrew word for honey. She called him master. Why? Because he was in charge. What'd she do? Whatever Abraham said. I'm sure she instructed him, argued with him on a regular basis, but when you come down to it, that results in an obligation. Here's the deal. He said, you know what? You had a husband. Guess what it was? It was the flesh. It was the sinful man. It was the sinful self. It was the sinful nature. It was a bad husband. Bad husband. Sin's a bad master. Your flesh be a bad husband. As a bad husband. And everybody that's ever been over here on the law side, and that'd be all of us, would understand how bad a situation that is. Slavery is not wrong. Marriage is not wrong unless you're married to the wrong person. The flesh. Mm. So we'll read Romans 7, 1 to 6 here real quick. Get on with some similarities. I know we're just a little bit over. Hang on just a second. We're just almost done. Do you not know, brothers, in other words, they do, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, which is what this is, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband. Wives are bound to husbands just like slaves are bound to masters. What's going to happen to the slave ultimately? Whatever happens to the master. What's going to happen to the wife? Ultimately, whatever happens to the husband. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. Uh, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is alive, she's going to have two husbands at once. You're not going to play that. She is called an adulteress 
But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So if you want to be free from that relationship, death would be the release in this illustration, okay? He's not, oh, I've been talking about righteousness and unrighteousness and slavery and freedom and condemnation and salvation. I've been talking about that for so long. You know, I got to get in here and talk about marriage a minute. That's not, this, that's stupid. Doesn't even follow the context of Romans. So then, my brothers, here's the point. You also died to the law. That's what sin used to hold dominion over sinners. The law Remember? Mm -hmm. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Because the law can't justify. All law can do is point out sin, just like a bad husband, just point out stuff to the wife all the time, never doing anything loving or helpful. So, brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. When were they connected to the body of Christ? Has he changed subjects yet? Not at all that you might belong to another. That's how he introduced Romans, writing to those who belong to God in Christ Jesus. Sounds like they're married. They are. They are. How'd that happen? They died to the flesh. You got to die to the flesh so you can be married to Jesus, okay? Uh, Died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. If we don't get rid of the flesh husband, the appetite of the flesh husband, if we don't get rid of our sinful selves, we're not going to bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful man, by the flesh, however you want to translate it, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Fooey, on God's promise, I'm going to fix this problem by myself. That's going to bear fruit for death. There ain't no way around it. Now we've moved from just salvation to fruitfulness. And we hadn't changed subjects yet. But now, by dying to what once bound us, and that would be law, we have been released from the law so that we may live in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Law and the flesh, law appeals to the flesh. Here's the commands, fine, I'll keep them. I kept them and Paul didn't. That, that didn't remove my boasting, it just demanded it. That has nothing to do with the promise, that has nothing to do with me trusting in God and doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. So if the gospel somehow in your mind is this 90, 10, 80, 20 business, you don't have the gospel. Because the gospel is, is the revelation of God affording you 100% righteousness. And all, this, all these relationships and all this stuff here, the key to it was death. Did I die to my sinful man? Did I die to my flesh when I was baptized into the body of Christ? Did I or not? Yep, that was a commandment. Nuh-uh, not just a commandment. 
is a promise. And what do you have to do with a promise for it to be powerful in your life? You got to believe it. Because freedom, freedom, fruitfulness, salvation, that's what's at stake. I told Chuck the other day, I'd give an illustration when I got here. And since you're sitting here, brother, um, here's, here's an illustration of what we're going to deal with in Romans 7. And it comes from this illustration of marriage. And a brother told me this 30 years ago. And he knew the people and used the names. I didn't know the people, but it's a really good illustration. And as far as I know, he never started to lie to me about anything. He had a friend growing up, went to school. Name was Catherine. She's a beautiful, fair young girl. Christian, just sweet as pie, my mama would say. Just everybody lit up when she came around. Just cheerleader. Fell in love with Luther, who was the all-star tailback for the Dallas High School where they were. State championships lined up. Luther's the guy, you know, they, they, he runs a 45-yard touchdown, and they penalize him 15. Next play, he runs a 60-yard touchdown. They penalize him 15. Next play, he runs 85-yard touchdown. I mean, it's just that kind of deal. He's the boss. We talked Catherine into marrying him, and he was a wretch. He was sorry. He stayed drunk most time, beat her all the time. Most especially when she didn't do the rules for the day. And he took a chalkboard and he wrote on it the rules for the day. And when he got home from work and those rules weren't done to his satisfaction, then he got a hold of her as quick as he could and he beat her. And when he hope in that relationship, brothers and sisters, when he salvation in that relationship is just walking death relationship. By the grace of God, he's drunk one night, runs his, his truck into a bridge embutment and it kills him. A few years later, and that went on for years, a few years later, my friend and maybe some other people introduced Catherine to a gospel preacher that lost his wife to cancer. And they got married. And he was kind and loving, helpful, gentle, kept his promises. She thrived on his love and his promises. And they were fruitful and productive together, and she was unafraid. She's up in the attic one day cleaning out stuff, and she found that old chalkboard. And it still had the last set of rules that Luther had wrote on it before he stormed off to work. And she looked at the rules on the chalkboard. And guess what? She'd already done every single one of those things on that chalkboard that day. 
But she didn't do it out of bitterness. She didn't do it out of fear. She didn't do it out of spite. She did it out of love, and it was filled with hope. That's the illustration. So when people just know more than God and they're going to run their own life, I'm sorry. They're not going to have any hope, so they're not going to have any power for the present. They're not going to have any expectation for the future. And Paul's not trying to tell you the sin you get away with. You don't get away with sin. He's trying to explain it in judicial terms so that the church in Rome can understand where they stand, where they stand with God and why. And always, when God has a relationship with sinners, I can tell you, the relationship stands on God. Because sinners don't have anything to bring to the table. But unrighteousness, and it can't be in God's presence, and God will deal with it, but he can't be in fellowship with it. So as we're preparing to read, and I'm encouraging you to read Romans chapter 7. And the argument that's going on in Romans chapter 7 is not what you want. Now you can get there. You can hate what you do and don't do what you want to do and you can't do what you want to do and you can't get nothing done. You're just wretched and tired and wore out. You can get there, and that's what the book of Romans is doing in the Bible, in my humble opinion. You can have the salvation that God promised right now and even on a day of judgment, and it not be a fruitful, a fruitful, dynamic, powerful thing in your mind right now. Because you can have it, And you're still going to have a life that's hard. You can have salvation. You can have God's righteousness. And people are still going to abuse you and and misuse you and steal your stuff and cuss you and blame you and all kinds of stuff. Overcharge you. All that stuff's going to happen. But Paul's gone to great extent to tell us the suffering in this world that takes place cannot defeat the righteousness God has given us. It cannot touch our hope. It cannot. And he moved beyond that to the truly, I mean, could y'all believe that? What God's given us in in Jesus, this world just can't whip. With all the suffering, all the shame, all the stuff that it could bring, this world can't whip what we have in Jesus. Would you buy that? Well, what he's been saying for a chapter and a half now is sin cannot either. Can you believe that? Sin ain't going to whip Jesus. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Death no longer has mastery over him. He ended that. He only entered that relationship for us. He let let sin be put upon him. He let death have its day. Separation from God have its day, and he defeated it because he is the righteous one. Brothers and sisters, that's where we stand in him. Let's pray.
Almighty God and Father in heaven, thank you, Father, for your promises. Thank you for your commands that, that inherently work to fasten us to those promises. You are faithful and you are true, and we trust that and we believe it. It inspires us, it motivates us, and it carries us through hard times. And sin's going to come at us in this life. It's even, it's even going to find its way into ours. But we're going to choose, Father, to believe about our sin right now, what we believed when we became Christians, and that is you're taking care of it in the blood of Jesus. And we're going to hear again your call to go forward, and we're going to be fruitful and productive in that. We're going to hang on to it till somebody asks us, what on earth have you got a hold of? And we'll say, glad you asked, and explain it. Help us do that, Father. We ask you to do that. Glorify yourself, Father, in keeping your promise to us and keeping your promises going forward. It's through Jesus who died for us we pray these things now. Amen. I appreciate so much uh, attention.